You've heard Rex Barney give that fan a contract. Now it's time to give that fan a podcast. Dive into some Orioles baseball talk with your host, Ryan Blake. Welcome back to another episode of Give That Fan a Podcast. This is episode number 11. I'm your host, Ryan Blake. Pitchers and catchers have reported Orioles spring training is officially underway. No games just yet, but they'll get those going in a couple weeks. Workouts have started, so Orioles baseball is back. I'm very excited about that. I am also back. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Dylan Atkinson and Danny Majerowitz, a couple good friends of mine talking some Orioles baseball. Had a lot of fun with them. I've got another great interview this week. I'm not going to give it a huge introduction because I'm in the freezing cold basement of my Airbnb and I want to wrap this up, but uh, I'm very excited to have returned after my little break for the holidays and and moving up here to Allentown, Pennsylvania. It's been a heck of an experience so far, and uh, I'm just excited to share this interview with you. Uh, Keith Law of The Athletic, prospect writer, I had a blast talking with him. Uh, He's... Oriole fans aren't too fond of him right now based on his uh, ranking of the Orioles' farm 18th across baseball when, if you look elsewhere, they're pretty much considered a top 10 uh, organizational farm system. But Keith has his reasons for for believing what he believes and and evaluating his players, and uh, I had a great chat with him, and, and I'm very excited to share it with you. My guest in this episode, I am very excited to welcome him on. He's been subject to some angry tweets from Oriole fans due to his recent farm system rankings, but it's okay because if you really check social media, you would know that he hates every team just the same. Formerly with ESPN, now writing at The Athletic, which is absolutely worth the subscription. Mr. Keith Law joins me on the podcast. Keith, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Hey, absolutely. Now, uh, we'll dive into some Orioles talk here in a second, but I wanted to talk about some more uh, broad scouting things uh, to start off. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally moved to Arizona last, well, not last, but September of 2019 to pursue a career in scouting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and things were going well until COVID hit in March, and I uh, <laughs> ended up driving back home. Ah, uh, yes. Um, so now I'm, I'm all the way back in Maryland, and uh, I'm currently at a video scouting internship with Baseball Info Solutions. So oh, great. Uh, I'm very excited about that. But um, I, I took a scout school course. It was a week-long course when I was out in Arizona. It was run by Bill Bavese, uh mm-hmm. with the help of, of some other scouts and, and you know staff that have, have worked in baseball. And one thing that they really taught us was the importance of formulating your own opinions and, and player evaluations when you're scouting. Mm-hmm. Um, what is important about that? Because obviously, you know, you have – when you when you think about the consensus, whether it's about you know the Orioles farm as a whole or specific players, um, the consensus is a little higher than what you might have them. Um, what what is your thought process, and why is it so important to stick by your own opinions? So, it's a good question. I, I and I don't know exactly why. I do know Bill a little bit. I don't know exactly what their what the course is or what they're teaching there, but I'll, I'll try to answer with how I try to go about evaluating players. Mm-hmm. And obviously I do offer opinions. It's my, that is my job. Right. To me, it is about creating a consistent and fairly evidence-based process for formulating those opinions. So that uh, one, the ultimate goal of these opinions is to be right. 
to improve your accuracy and you'll never get to hundred percent. You'll never get close to it. But the idea is the more you do it, uh, the better you get. And so that means also constantly refining your process over time and being open and willing to make changes to the process. But the second thing, and this is, I guess, maybe a little bit more true for my job than it is for folks who work for teams is to make sure that the process is consistent and at least reasonably transparent so that if fans are saying, well, why don't you have Ryan Mountcastle higher on your rankings? Not only can I explain that in terms of available evidence, but also point to players maybe who are similar to Mountcastle in other organizations in the current year or previous years and say, no, I'm consistent because I believe that players who have these five characteristics are likely to have this sort of outcome or this kind of median outcome. And so that I don't actually care if anyone thinks I'm biased because that's, I think that's really dumb, but I do want to appear consistent for people whose opinions of my work do matter, such as the people I work for or people who work in front offices or who are scouts themselves. And it is always gratifying to me when I put out lists and get messages as I did this year from folks in the scouting community who say they like the list, appreciate the work that I put into it and recognize that these are very much my opinions that I am, I have my process and that leads to my evaluations of players and whether they're right or wrong, they don't look like anybody else's. In other words, you care more about the people who actually have jobs in baseball than those who uh, sit behind a computer and tweet at you. And honestly, they're the people whose evaluations I take most seriously. They do this for a living, uh, even more than I do this for a living. And they spend more time going out and seeing players than I get to do because I have other responsibilities and don't obviously don't have the same, uh, the same budget. And so I, and I often depend on their opinions too. And if they don't respect the work that I'm doing, why would they continue to share their opinions with me or solicit my own opinions? Sometimes people in front offices will reach out and say, what do you think of player so-and-so we might acquire him in a trade. I want to, I enjoy doing that, even though there's not any real direct gain for me to do it. But I, to me, it is part of the sort of social fabric of the network around, around baseball of people who do try to evaluate players. And to me, those conversations are always really interesting and insightful. And I don't want to do anything that might jeopardize my ability to participate in them going forward. Yeah, certainly fair. Now, uh, one thing I've noticed in in your player evaluations, uh, following you and reading your work through the years is that you, you hone in on uh, players mechanics more so than uh, the results on the field, which, uh, and, and I, I wanted to ask you in that sense, um, how do mechanical flaws impact uh, future value? And not just mechanical flaws, but, but positive mechanics as well. And at what point do you perhaps take a look at a player's results and say, well, this pitcher may not get over his front side as much as I'd like him to, but he's striking out 11 per nine and only walking less than three. Uh, at what point do those results kind of become undeniable compared to the flaws that may or may not predict uh, how a player might develop and, and perform in the future? That's going to vary depending on the player, uh, the competition that he's facing, and what the mechanical flaw is. So, for example, I never thought Brett Jackson's swing worked. It just did not. I didn't like didn't like how his hands worked. Didn't like how he basically didn't use his lower half at all. The way he was meeting the ball out front. This guy is not only not going to impact the baseball, but he's going to have a really hard time not swinging and missing at basically all types of pitches. And that's exactly what happened. Despite him being a really good athlete, he turned out to be nothing in the big leagues. 
yet he performed, I think, basically all the way up through the minors. I think until he got to the big leagues, he really never ran into any of that trouble. His performance data, the performance data that we had at the time, which was not like the stat cast data we have now, but the performance data said, hey, this guy's going to be a really good big leaguer. And people, Cubs fans said, why do, you, why do you hate the Cubs? Why do you think Brett Jackson isn't good when all he's ever done is perform? That was because I thought that flaw was, one, not correctable, and two, that it would get exposed by better pitching, that he'd get to the big leagues and struggle with better pitching. We're seeing this with Kevin Biggio already with the Blue Jays, who can hit below average stuff. But as the Tampa Bay showed in the playoffs too, if you just pound him with velocity, he can't catch up to it. And that over time, that is going to expose him, even though Biggio was also a performer basically all the way up through the minors, particularly in the on-base department. There are other things though, where other, other flaws in other situations too, where I have to consider, okay, this guy is continuing to perform in spite of a flaw that I thought would limit his performance. And I will say, I never try to, I, I try to never look at mechanical flaws and say, he sucks. He's a non-prospect because of that. Guys right. succeed in spite of flaws. Dustin Pedroia did not have a good mechanical swing. Um, it was all uphill with some backside collapse and it was very pull oriented. And because of who he was and his ability to foul off pitches, he couldn't pull. He managed to have a tremendous career. Chris sale, horrible mechanics, no breaking ball in college, obviously had an outstanding career blew out 1200 innings later. So of course there are always exceptions. I'm mindful of that. I'm not so much focused on highlighting the except on finding the exceptions, because I think at that point you're just, you know, it's the, neglecting the base rate, which I talk about in my book, The Inside Game. I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm not good enough to tell you this is the needle in the haystack. But what I can do is try to balance those things. And when writing about a player, say, okay, he's really not finishing out over his front side. And so he's not getting the depth on his breaking ball that I expect him to, or he's not getting as much deception from his fastball because he doesn't get the extension you want out front. And yet here are the results. And now we have more granular data available on a lot of these players and can see, okay, well, what's the spin rate on the curveball or what's the vertical movement on the curveball? What kind of extension is he getting? How are hitters faring against fastballs versus off-speed pitches? And try to compare the two, the, the data and the visual observations, which I'm including, which is where I'm counting the mechanical flaws that, I'm, that I think I'm identifying, to be able to say, okay, this flaw exists. However, if it's not showing up on the field, then maybe it's not an issue yet. And acknowledge that, yeah, I don't like something about his swing or about his delivery. However, we have this data that says up to this certain level of competition, it has worked. Or up to this certain level of, uh, of playing time, this pitcher hasn't gotten hurt, even though I sort of very much expect him to do so. And so it is important for me to acknowledge both sides and still come down with an opinion and say, hey, I still, still don't like it. But I also acknowledge maybe he is one of the outliers, even though I would bet on if you gave me 20 players who look like this, the vast majority of them are going to work out. Maybe this is the one guy who does. I feel smarter already. That's a, that's a good answer. I like that. Now, uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the Orioles now. Um, now, the, the struggles of working amid the pandemic in 2020 are obviously well-documented. Every team was hurt. Every prospect seemingly lost a year of development in terms of being able to play against other teams and, and learn that way. Um, in your opinion, were some farms uh, hurt worse than others during the pandemic? And if so, where do the Orioles fall into that? We won't know for um, probably for six months or more because – 
I could come up with lots of arguments, lots of hypotheses on which types of players will be most hurt. I was, God, I don't remember who I was talking to yesterday, the day before I was, I think I was doing a radio hit and said, uh, you know, it's possible that you could argue that the hardest hit players prospects by the lost year are the teenagers, the high school drafts and the international signees who needed that year of repetitions. They needed that development time because you just don't get better. In most cases, you don't get better by not playing. You get better by playing. And you get better by being around coaches and other teammates and the sharing of information that goes on in that environment as opposed to the forced isolation that we had to have last year due to the pandemic. So the teenagers are, are worst off, are worth the, the worst hit category. Oh, but wait, no, it's actually the college draftees who they have such a limited window, especially college position players. They have such a limited window to get to the big leagues in time to carve out a substantial career. And now we've got a lot of guys who are 23 or 24 and haven't played above short season ball yet. So the clock is ticking on them. They essentially have to go to double A as quickly as possible this year and produce the first time. There's no second go around for these guys or they will largely be dismissed as too old or even passed by maybe the next player, next wave of players coming up behind them. So I don't really know. The one hypothesis I've put out there that I actually think, and I would like to see how this plays out, but I feel reasonably good about this based on prior evidence, I think there will be a number of pitchers who actually do benefit from a, essentially a forced year off, but pitchers who we may not even have known that there was anything wrong in their elbows or their shoulders or, or anything else, but forcing them to take a year off will allow them to heal a little bit and maybe just delay some sort of more serious injury. Maybe we'll never know. Maybe that's not something you can accurately measure. How do you measure injuries that didn't occur? But I am hopeful that there will be a class of pitchers who were 17 to 20 in, in the year 2020 who will enjoy a little bit more health over the next couple of years, whether it's greater durability or just fewer, fewer skipped starts or times on the injured list because they were able to take a year off. And maybe that'll change the way that we think about dealing with some pitchers going forward, that we're more willing to say to pitchers, no, you can take half a season so that from September to June, you're really just not pitching because we're trying to have you heal. And then we'll sort of ease you back in. We, nobody wants to accept the idea of just having a pitcher take a year off, but if that's what we have to do to keep guys healthier in the long term, maybe we should be open to it. Yeah. And I, I spoke with Matt blood, the Orioles director of mm -hmm. player development uh, actually last night and his, his episode will be out uh, following yours, but uh, he mentioned that the biggest difficulty he thinks moving forward and returning to some semblance of normalcy mm -hmm. will be load management and ensuring that mm. these players who haven't had real game time in the past year uh, stay healthy and are able to uh, maintain their longevity and hopefully not come down with any injuries. And you bring up a good, a good counterpoint that perhaps the extended time off helped these players um, gain a little more durability and recover from perhaps minor injuries that, that we may not have known about. Now uh, you ranked the Orioles farm 18th in baseball uh, as which when you look at it objectively compared to um, other publications, it seems low, but when you take into the fact into consideration, the fact that you had them 24th prior to last season and 30th mm -hmm. the year before, it's actually a significant improvement. Um, and I'll, I'll give you an opportunity to explain your thought process for that in just a bit. But uh, I wanted to start with a couple questions about uh, your Orioles top 20 prospect list. Sure. Um, and a few things that stood out to me, uh, and, and I'll give you a chance to 
um, to make your arguments here. Uh, the first one was you have DL Hall ranked over Grayson Rodriguez, which is uh, flip flop from from what we're used to seeing. Mm-hmm. And based on your description, it seems like more of um, more praise for DL Hall than it is a knock on Grayson Rodriguez. Is that a fair assumption? Yeah, I think that's fair. Hall is left-handed. He's a better athlete. I think he has, if you look at his two off-speed pitches, his best two off-speed pitches compared to Grayson's two best off-speed pitches, I think Grayson actually throws four distinct pitches. But I would take Hall's top two off-speed pitches over Grayson's top two. And Grayson Rodriguez has a little pause in his delivery that I think costs him some momentum. And I'm not forecasting injury. I'm just saying we don't see a lot of big league starters who do that. Those are small things that I try to use, especially on the top 100 when I'm trying to distinguish between players who are five or 10 spots apart on the list. It often comes down to those little things. And uh, you know, I think Grayson Rodriguez had more evident success in the stat line in low A than DL Hall did because Hall's just walked more guys and people just assume, well, that's just who they are. That's it. That's, this, is, this is determinative of their entire future. And I mean, no, that's, one, we know that's not true. I would encourage anybody to go back and look at what Kerry Wood did in the minors. He actually had a pretty good big league career when he wasn't hurt. Uh, and to recognize that this is about forecasting many years into the future, not just what I think these guys are right now or what I think they could do if they were in the big leagues in 2021, but thinking the next, I would say, four to six years on most of these players uh, is at least what I'm trying to consider in this. I think even trying to forecast beyond that is probably a little foolhardy, but I like Hall's ability to have a longer, a longer career with more upside as a starter than Rodriguez, even though I both think they're big league starters and quite good ones. Mm-hmm. And that's fair. And you had, I, I, I may have these numbers wrong, but I think you had Hall 49th and Rodriguez 55th in your rankings. Yes. So they're in the top really close. So, exactly. Yes. Now, uh, the next one, uh, two shortstops, that, uh, one of whom is, is coming off a season in which he didn't get to play any games, but there's a ton of hype surrounding him based purely on the fact that he was able to, to be around Adley Rutschman and soak up a bunch of information. And all reports were that he, he did uh, an excellent job at the alternate site. And that's Gunnar Henderson, who you have ranked seventh in the Orioles farm, one spot behind Adam Hall. And mm-hmm. that's also the first time I've seen that one, and I'm, I'm curious what your, what your thoughts are there. I think people have sort of slept on Adam Hall a little bit, probably because he didn't really perform until just the very, I think the the tail end of 2019, especially was where we started to see him perform uh, up to his capabilities. And by the way, I don't know that the organization has them that way. I think they may like Henderson more. Of course they gave Henderson more money. That's often a justification uh, for, for internally why teams, there's a huge bias that goes on with that where it's, you know, how much did you pay for him or where was he drafted or he just came into the system more recently and he's the shiny new toy. They're both fine players. I think Adam Hall, Adam Hall is clearly a better runner. I absolutely believe in his instincts on both sides of the ball more than I do Henderson's. I, I, Adam Hall is a shortstop. Now, maybe at some point they choose to move him to another position for other reasons, but Hall is more likely to stay at shortstop for me than Henderson is. Henderson's stronger. He's going to make more impact. You may decide that you prefer that. You may say, I'd rather cast in my lot with a you know, third baseman who I believe more in the bat than a shortstop where the power is probably going to be a little bit light, but you know, he does a lot of the other things like base running has, I think maybe a better approach. The one caveat, and I did note it, note this in the top 20 is that Hall wasn't able to come to the United States. I think until just until instructs uh, because he's Canadian and folks who saw him in instructional league said he looked rusty. 
And that's, you know, put him back, goes back to our earlier, the earlier part of the conversation where we talked about players who might be really adversely affected. Here is a pretty young position player, Canadians who didn't come into baseball with maybe as many repetitions as a lot of us born kids, and then just lost out on a whole year, not just minor league opportunities, but he didn't even get to go to the alternate site. So it's possible that Adam Hall is, is further behind than even I want to acknowledge at this point, even than I understand. And, and maybe that's an argument to have Henderson over him. But for now, given Adam's athleticism and positional value, I was comfortable putting him over Henderson in the rankings. That's fair. And I, th- I think there, there could certainly be a lot of recency bias with, you know, the good reports with Henderson coming out mm-hmm. of camp. And like you said, Hall missed a, a good deal of time. Uh, so I, I like that justification. And then uh, the next little bunch of player comparisons are three lefties uh, who some might argue have mid rotation ceilings. Some might argue are potential solid bullpen arms in the future. One of them has already made his major league debut uh, this past year and did reasonably well. Um, Zach Lowther, you have 12th, Keegan Aiken, 13th and Kevin Smith, 14th. Could you compare those three? Um, yeah, they're, they're all nothing alike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um you know, and let me yet, just and yet very close together in the rankings. Right, and Lowther is a really uh, an interesting one, and I guess maybe a little bit of a, a a difficult one in the sense that we don't see a lot of guys who look like him in the big leagues. But that's not bad in his case. I think that's more. There's a bit of an industry bias against guys like Lowther. He doesn't throw especially hard. He doesn't look all that athletic. He's a Statcast guy, and I actually mean that in a very positive way. In that Statcast has allowed us to see why he is effective, as effective as he is, because it's things that we may have missed even through traditional scouting. Very high spin rates on pretty much all of his non-changeup offerings, as far as I can, I, I don't have it in front of me, but I believe both the fastball and the breaking ball have high spin rates. And he's got absurd extension out over his front side. I have seen Zach Luther pitch in pro ball. Hitters don't like it at all (laughs) left and right-handed left-handed especially even though he does not have an exceptional breaking ball if you're just going by its break but boy did they not see the ball coming out of his hand and i do very much believe in sort of there's some very old scouting platitudes you know you'll hear the expression tony gwynn especially love to say it hitters hit meaning if you're going to tell me this guy's got a good hit tool well then he hits right if he doesn't hit don't tell me he's got a good hit tool something's not adding up to me the the corollary to that is if hitters don't see the ball out of a pitcher's hand and they are swinging and missing and swinging and missing ugly, which they do out of low when it's Lothar, they're telling you something doesn't make him an ace, but it's saying that stuff is better than the radar gun actually tells you it is. Whereas the other guys you're talking about are more radar gun guys and a little bit more traditional guys in, in Smith's case, I think it's development of secondary ahead of him. It's going to determine starter reliever in Aiken's case. A lot of it to me has just been about conditioning. And I think a little bit of him just needing some, maturity on the mound which we are starting to see signs of that and i think he can be a big league starter for them this year and by the way i hope they use the major league rotation this year as sort of an extended series of auditions you got a lot of guys who are basically double a and up at this point big league's team's going to be bad i think everyone acknowledges that yes don't run i mean i'm glad you traded alex cobb and by the way got a real prospect for him which is awesome very exciting. Run a, run a bunch of the kids out there. Stop worrying so much about service time with these guys. A bunch of them are 24 years old anyway. You're not worried about where they're going to be in six years. You're worried about where they're going to be in two years. Get the development started. Try to separate some of these guys. This one's a starter. This one's a reliever. This one's kind of in between. You can make those evaluations best when they're in the big leagues. 
Certainly. Now, uh, one other guy I wanted to ask you about, no longer a prospect, but someone you were previously very high on is uh, Chance Sisko. Mm -hmm. And he has has made his debut. It's been rocky at times. He's shown an ability to get on base, which is something he's always had. Um, Do you still think that Sisko can be a contributor? And if so, what could or what should his role be with the Orioles moving forward? Uh, I would like to think so. Uh, However, it's funny. His name just came up the other day because I was talking to somebody about it. catching prospect in another organization. And he said, well, this guy could be like a chance Cisco type. And that was not a compliment. He was (laughs) essentially saying that as a guy who catches reasonably well, this other guy we were talking about was actually a much better defensive catcher, but that there'd be no impact at all. That this was a guy who would just probably maybe put the ball in play at a decent clip, but not hit for any power. And if you look at Cisco too, he's just not really hitting the ball all that hard. Um, Mm -hmm. And also it's funny. I just pulled this up to make sure I wasn't talking out of my ass here. (laughs) Yeah. His launch angle, like he's, it's not good. His average launch angle, he is, he is way too uphill. And I, I don't know when that happened. I remember seeing Cisco multiple games for Delmarva, low A, and thinking he's going to hit for average without power, but that was all it was, right? It was just like line drive, line drive, line drive. He wasn't weak. He was putting the ball in play at a good clip. He was middle of the field. It's going to be a lot of singles and doubles. I was good with that. Why is he hitting the way he's hitting now? Did somebody change this? I, I don't actually know. It'd be a question for somebody in the Orioles system. And it might be a question for somebody who isn't there anymore. It's entirely possible, mm-hmm. but this chance Cisco is not the guy I saw up through double a, I would say. Something changed between Bowie and certainly in 2019 and 2020 when his launch angle really just kind of went, it's just way too high. He might as well be swinging straight up. Uh, I don't know what that is. And I don't know if that's fixable. I don't, you know, you'd have to sort of know the genesis to understand if there's maybe something you can do to remedy it. But either way, I think he's still got big league value, but there's a, there is a missing chunk here at the plate that someone's going to have to figure out. Maybe it's not the Orioles. Maybe Adley comes so quickly that the Orioles just look to another team and say, we'll give you chance Cisco for, you know, a minor pitching prospect. You can try to fix him because we have our catcher of the future here in Rutschman. Right now let's, let's go ahead and move forward to uh, the Orioles system as a whole. Uh, and, and you can answer this with, you know, I mentioned earlier, I'd give you a chance to uh, just kind of explain your, your thought process in, in putting the Orioles in the bottom half of the league. Um, how much was the Orioles ranking impacted by their lack of an international presence over the past decade? I mean, it's a huge issue. And I, I've noted, I know you why you asked this, obviously, and noted that. I even said in my chat last week, people, Orioles fans who think that they're going to have a top half or top 10 system when they have zero international prospects are delusional. And I have to say, I don't, you know, I have a lot of respect for the, the guys at, you know, MLB and, and uh, baseball America, but I do not understand their rankings of this system when it is devoid of international prospects of my top 20, 19 came through the, came into professional baseball through the draft. The other is used Neil Diaz, a Cuban free agent signed by the Dodgers and acquired in trade. The Orioles have just punted on international for 10 years. And occasionally when they've had a Homar Reyes or an old Nelky Peralta, guess what? It has worked. So there's nothing from outside of Canada, US, Puerto Rico in this system at all. You are closing the door on an avenue that provides baseball with somewhere between 30 and 40% of its major league talent. How are you going to have an elite system when you get nothing from there and their drafts, and this includes drafts prior to the Mike Elias regime, have not been great. So, 
of course you don't have an elite system. I and mean, to me, it should be completely obvious. And I have a hard time understanding the rancor I've gotten from Oreos fans when I think a pretty rational argument is right in front of them saying, you've just closed off this very important avenue of talent acquisition. And by the way, Orioles fans know they haven't drafted all that well, especially prior to Elias. And, and by the way, I didn't love the 2020 draft either. I thought they went down at the at their first pick for Heston Kirstad, um, who's apparently also not well right now too, coming back from myocarditis, which is a separate concern. But the money they saved with him, I didn't think they put it to good use. So there were, I, I have a whole lot of concerns that goes back to the very first question you asked me. I try to back up my opinions with evidence. I think I make a pretty clear and I hope compelling argument why this is not a top half system. And if you're arguing against that, you're saying it doesn't matter that they've skipped international. It doesn't matter that their drafts haven't been great. It doesn't matter that they've, they've certainly had some problems on the development side, although I have reason to believe that that's all getting better. And that every other team, 25 other teams do that stuff better, particularly international. That doesn't matter. The Orioles are still top half. And to me, it's ultimately when someone comes to me and says, well, the Orioles should be in the top half of your systems. My answer is why? Because you want them to be? That's not really the kind of evidence I'm looking for. Right. And that, so your answer to that question kind of leads me into the final three questions that I had in my notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the first being, uh, so I guess based on your answer, you would then argue that a team cannot have a top 15 or top 10 farm without a major investment in the international market. Is that simply due to the fact that there's just so much international talent out there? I wouldn't say can't, but I would say very difficult Um, because I think I have the Tigers actually in the top half and they also have pretty much squat from international, but they're not in the top 10. So yeah, it's extremely, extremely difficult. You'd have to crush the draft, draft high, do well on picks outside the first round, and then also follow through with strong development. And the Orioles haven't, haven't had enough of that. And they've particularly just not drafted well enough. And then again, this goes back five years or more. The results just haven't really been there. And it's, it's, it would be disappointing if I were an Orioles fan, but again, there's just so much talent coming from the international side. You look at my top 10 or my top 20, how many international guys there are there, how many high ceiling guys, Wander Franco, my number one prospect, international signee. Prior to him, it was Fernando Tatis Jr., international signee. Number two, when Tatis was number one, Vlad Guerrero, international signee. Why are you ignoring this market? There's no good reason for it. The Orioles are just finally starting to play down there, and that's great for them. It's going to be a couple of years before we see any impact from their efforts there trickle into pro ball because, of course, it's February of 2021 as we're talking these guys are already out there scouting kids who are 13 and 14 to sign several years down the road. Right now you mentioned drafting and uh, this is just kind of a, a more fun question that I wanted to ask just hypothetically mm-hmm. speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you did say that the, the Tigers are our top half. I think they killed their draft last year. I think it was fantastic. Um, but in the Orioles sense, um, you had Austin Martin ranked number one in your, mm-hmm. your draft where most people had Spencer Torkelson. Um Hypothetically speaking, had the Orioles drafted Austin Martin and then let's just say done an average job the rest of the way, not good, not bad. Mm-hmm. How, how does that impact their, their current uh, draft ranking? I would have liked the draft more, certainly. And I think they, um, it was too clever by half essentially to take Kirstad, who was maybe, I think he was 10th on my board, mm-hmm. maybe even a touch lower. This guy struck out a ton in the SEC. And I know the exit velocities were good, and I know they love their exit velocities, but they they 
man, if you don't hit SEC pitching that well with a metal bat, why do we believe you're going to make more contact when you're facing better quality pitching in pro ball and also having to use a wood bat? Whereas Austin Martin, on the, he was the other opposite side. He never struck out. And he's a better athlete. And he plays a skill position. And he can run reasonably well. I, I don't know exactly what happened if Martin's agent just came out and was asking for $10 million or something. I doubt it since the Blue Jays took him and eventually signed him. But uh, if they had Martin instead of Kierstad, and then obviously didn't have Mayo and, and Baumler, who's hurt, would it have bumped them up? Yeah, maybe a spot or two. Maybe one player doesn't usually make a huge difference in the farm system rankings. It's much more about the sum total of all the talent in your system. If they had taken Kirstad and done better in the fourth and fifth rounds, though, that would have made more of a difference. If they'd gotten a couple more of the higher upside high school players who were available were hypothetically available, meaning they were still out there to be picked, but maybe not signable with the money that the Orioles had they could have had a better draft result than that. And we'll see. Maybe Kobe Mayo turns out to be a better player than I think. Maybe Baumler comes back from the injury and he's more advanced pitcher than anyone thought he was when he was still pitching in high school in Iowa. We don't know. Yeah, and, and perhaps a, a Jared Kelly over Jordan Westberg and at, at 39 could have could have given us sure. a little boost there as well. Absolutely. And that's, that's a name that the Oriole fans were clamoring for at the time. And, you know, we like Westberg. We think he's he's got some potential. But, you know, obviously, as is the case with any draft, you don't know until a few years down the road yep. whether you nailed it or whether it's a it's a complete dud. Um, now, my final question for you, you mentioned uh, in your description when in 2018, when you ranked the Orioles farm 30th, mm-hmm. uh, your last sentence was, fortunately, the Orioles hired the right people for the job. Uh, and, and that was in reference to the system being a mess. It was going to take a long time to uh, turn things around. Um, but you said the Orioles hired the right people for the job. Do you still stand by that? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's just going to take time. And they haven't done everything right. I wish they had, um, you know, they let go of a bunch of scouts at the beginning. I thought that might be prelude to just turning the staff over. They haven't really done so. I would like to see them hire more scouts. I did not think Elias or Sig were anti-scout necessarily, but so far they're the way they're running the amateur side, especially has been. And I would like to see that change. Frankly, I'd like to see them have more on the pro scouting side. You just make better decisions that way. It's more information. Why wouldn't you want to gather more of it? But overall, I think they're on the right path. I think they're doing the right things. I think they're trying to implement processes in a front office that just didn't have good processes where you had an ongoing war between the GM and the manager. You had very little going right in player development uh, in part because the manager was overly involved there. You had no R&D department to speak of. You had no international scouting department to speak of. That's a lot to ask any new GM to try to fix even in the span of two years. Certainly. And I'll, I'll leave you with this. Would, would you argue now that the Oriole, that Orioles fans have reason to believe that with Grayson Rodriguez and DL Hall and Michael Bauman and Zach Lothar and other names uh, that we will not see a repeat of the Chris Tillman's Troy Patton's mm-hmm. Zach Britton's Brian Mattis. Uh, do we have reason to believe that, that the franchise has turned a corner and that, that we won't screw up these guys with mm-hmm. the, the developmental staff that we've seen in the past? Yeah. Those guys were all pretty good in their own ways, but they didn't develop. I mean, that's absolutely right. They didn't develop and it was because of all sorts of reasons. Some guy, I mean, someone's going to get hurt, right? We've talked about at least five or six different starting pitching prospects here. One of them at a minimum is going to just get hurt in the, to the point that he doesn't really pan out. I don't know which one it is. And obviously I'm not rooting for that. I'm just saying that's, those are the facts about pitching prospects. It's why you try to collect as many as you can. But I do feel like this, this new regime will maybe avoid 
more obvious missteps. If guys are showing signs of injury or breaking down, they will do more to try to stem that so that it doesn't turn into a more serious injury. And maybe it means a role change for somebody before they, before that player ultimately breaks down to the point where he's not useful. That said, I still can't believe Brian Mattis wasn't a better big leaguer. I really have no idea on that one. Cause when I saw that guy in college, I was like, Holy cow, this guy could pitch in triple a tomorrow. And that was actually sort of true, but then he never got any better. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately for Oriole fans, uh, Keith law, I very much appreciate your time. Uh, writer at The Athletic, lead prospect writer, uh, and you have a book out as well. I have a whole, you mentioned this uh, a little bit earlier, and I'd, I'd like to give you a chance to plug that as well. Uh, I have a whole list of books that I've, I'm waiting to read, and, and yours is certainly on that list. I need to order it and get it uh, get it going. Uh, go ahead and, and, and tell us about your book just, just quickly. Thank you. The book is called The Inside Game. This is my second book. My first book was Smart Baseball. The book I think you're referring to is The Inside Game, yes. Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves. It is coming out in paperback on April 6th. You can pre-order it now on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble, any bookstore, if you have a local independent bookstore, you want to try to support them during this, this pandemic and economic shutdown, please do so. You can call any of them. I know they can pre-order it now. It is absolutely out and available from HarperCollins. And in it, I combine baseball stories with my personal interest and one that's very common in baseball front offices with the science of decision-making, particularly exploring cognitive biases that everybody can, every, if you're human, if you have a human brain, which is maybe not everybody listening, but hopefully most of you, you have these cognitive biases. There's nothing you can do to not have them. But what you can do is learn to change your decision-making processes to try to work around them by finding more data, better data, using more evidence, changing the process you use to research a question before you come to an ultimate decision. And you may not make every decision the right one, but it will certainly make your decisions better as a whole, whether it's in your personal life, in the workplace, or if you're running baseball team. There you go. Well, I, I don't know Allentown, Pennsylvania very well just yet, but I will try to find a local bookstore. I'm very <laughs> interested in checking out the book. Uh, Keith Law, thank you so much for your time. Yep. Thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. Well, that was Keith Law, prospect writer at The Athletic. I really hope you all enjoyed that interview. I had a blast chatting with him. He's a wonderful baseball mind, been around the game a long time. And as he mentioned, doesn't just pull his rankings out of his ass. So uh, very excited and thankful that he was willing to come on the show. I hope to continue bringing you guys some good guests. Next week, we'll have Matt Blood, Orioles Director of Player Development, and then a couple more exciting guests in the following weeks leading up to the season. Uh, thank you, as always, to Derek and Tony at Utah Street Report for hosting the pod. You can follow me on Twitter at RyeGuyBlake at OriolesFanProbs with a Z, and we will see you next week. Ooh.